Welcome to The Green Docs. This is a podcast that talks about the latest news in women's and family health and how that connects to the environment. Here are some headlines you didn't know you need to know. Probably heard Elon Musk tell advertisers to, let's call it, go take a hike this week in a now infamous interview with Andrew Sorkin. But that might not have been the most important thing he had to say that day. And this time of year when temperatures are dropping and people are lighting those pilot lights, you're probably thinking about a cold snap. But how about a cold nap? Parents in Scandinavia leave their newborns to sleep outdoors overnight. And according to the Washington Post, a startup funded by Bill Gates Investment Group, a company called Graphite, discovers a way to store or capture carbon dioxide at a breakthrough price, $100 a ton. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this first of a two-part holiday episode, we're talking shopping with the Green Docs gift guide. We're also talking seasonal mocktails and an interview with George's Benjamin, America's top public health doc. He's the executive director of the American Public Health Association, was recently named one of America's top 500 most influential people. So you'll want to hear what he has to say about COVID, what went right, what went wrong, and most importantly, how we've learned lessons to respond to emergencies like this better in the future. You may also want to hear if he has any New Year's resolutions. I'm Nate DiNicola, a private practice OBGYN and chief medical officer, and also the delegate to our national and international OBGYN societies on environmental health. And I'm Bruce Bacar, an OBGYN in San Diego and longtime environmental activist. So Nate, what's been going on with you? Not much has been going on with me. I've, I've been delivering a lot of babies. I was on call for Thanksgiving, and it was pretty amazing. On three separate occasions, right as we were about to sit down and you know, somebody said, okay, gather around the table, it's time for a meal. At that exact moment, I got called back to the hospital three straight times. Wow. Did you finally manage to get a decent holiday meal after all that? When did you actually have your turkey dinner? My first bite of turkey was driving in the car to do a C-section. Uh, I had a little bit Kendall had prepared for me in a, in a Tupperware with some cranberry and turkey. So I got that kind of on the the five freeway. I did eventually get to sit down and have what may be the best Thanksgiving tradition of all is, is Thanksgiving leftovers. So those came later on that weekend. How about you? Did you have a Thanksgiving meal? Well, I did, but not the typical one I'm used to because I had it at home alone. I was uh, quarantining with COVID. I finally got the infection after all these years. And I took Paxlovid, uh, which seemed to blunt my symptoms quite a bit, but of course I had to protect other people. So I stayed home and, and had some store-bought turkey dinner. But on the brighter side, I'm sure you've noticed just glancing at me in this video, I think you can tell probably that I'm absolutely glowing today. I finally got my filtered shower head installed as recommended by Sonia on an earlier episode. And uh, my skin looks better to me. And I'm also noticing that I'm using less shampoo on my hair and my hair feels a lot cleaner. 
I think she's right. I think the filtered shower head is a real thing. Well, I guess that's a better explanation than uh, what I thought, which was I, I thought you might just be pregnant. <laughs> no, I've been quarantining. That couldn't possibly have happened. But, I heard that uh, story a few times from patients reason. also. Yeah, I, I've heard that line before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so th- this uh, this Thanksgiving sounds like it wasn't maybe the, the highlight for either of us this year. But uh, in talking to George's Benjamin, we have some lessons learned from COVID and we have some things to look forward to. And we've got some headlines to talk about. So had you had you seen Elon Musk's or heard Elon Musk's statement? They seem like they've made their rounds on the metaverse pretty quickly. Yeah, the interview, and certainly as so often happens with media reports, uh, the most inflammatory or outrageous things get the most traffic. But there was a lot of uh, substance to the interviews. What did you take out of it? Buried kind of after the large headline grabbing statements about what advertisers can do in a way that sounded like it came from uh, Wise Guys or The Godfather, he said something that we want to talk about, which is that in his role as leader of Tesla, the world's largest producer of electric vehicles, that he therefore has done more for the environment than anyone on the planet, which is quite a statement. So what do you think, Bruce? Is, Is he right? I think he is right. And it's not just that Tesla is a successful company. I think his contribution can't be overstated, that he had actually made the idea of driving something other than an internal combustion engine, not only financially viable, but cool. They are fabulous cars. I have had a new Tesla more times than I care to admit, and I love them. They continue to amaze me at what they can do. And the fact that they evolve over the course of ownership also with software updates. And I think what I find most exciting now when I drive around is to notice all the non-Tesla electrics that are proliferating. Because you don't just have to be a Tesla owner to be part of the solution. All these other manufacturers are finally coming up with really interesting and appealing alternatives. And it really makes the point that this is where the automotive industry is going. And Elon is responsible more than any single individual for the transformation of transportation, not just cars, but trucks and buses. Amazon electric delivery vehicles are now starting to come along. So he really started a revolution. And again, I'm not happy at all about some of the things that he has tweeted and what he's put up on X and all the other sort of foul stuff that's appearing on that platform. But I think we have to keep it in context. I think he has made more of a contribution environmentally than any other individual alive. Yeah, I keep thinking of that DMX lyric from the early 2000s, X going to give it to you. I feel like that could be the byline (laughs) for uh, his new platform. Yeah, there's a lot on there that that we're not going to get into here. But I think at the core, his message echoed what Adam Aaron told us uh, in his interview, which is the most important thing that really anybody can be doing right now is leaving fossil fuels in the ground. And that does rise above other things that are done. Not that those aren't important, you know, but if you were the world leader in say, you know, reducing plastic straw usage, it wouldn't even compare to the kind of impact we're making on the the biosphere in decreasing carbon emissions. Interesting take he had. Speaking of electric vehicles and looking at it from a physician standpoint, all of the emissions that are not being put out into the atmosphere by these cars as they drive around, which is good for pedestrians and cyclists. It's good for other people just driving around. The fact that these cars not only don't spew all these terrible tailpipe emissions, 
but they're also silent or virtually silent, which is really kind of a nice thing for us to have or to not have to deal with the loud, loud noise that so many internal combustion engines make. So there are health benefits that are immediate that go beyond climate. Yeah, they're silent until you ask them to do their holiday Christmas light show. Then <laughs> then they they light up the neighborhood. My mom, for, for many years, would kind of do her own light spectacular in our neighborhood. And like, why does a car do a light show that's like got choreographed dance with the gull wings opening and closing and the mirrors flapping back? No particular reason why a car should do that. But we were highly entertained and uh, seemed to add something to the brand. Well, there's something childlike about Elon sometimes. And it's it, it's things like that. And also that you can program the car to make, okay, I'll just call it what it is. It makes fart noises that come out from different <laughs> seats in the car. So you can make, you make your passenger look over at you and give you a quizzical look when you've just had some kind of an odd fart noise escape from your proximity. Of course, it's free from the uh, unpleasant smells that might go along with that. It's a little bit of his quirky uh, sense of humor that's coming through. Okay, so do you think this is why Scandinavian parents leave their children outdoors? <laughs> they don't. They don't want any of those noises or sounds or smells in the bedroom. You know, that's an in the uh, segue department. That's a bit of an overreach, but let's go with it. Yeah, sure. They are no. They're not at all concerned. Yeah. So, so let me tell you about this story. It's been making its rounds on TikTok and other socials uh, for for most of the year, but because it's winter now, it's kind of taking on more more traction. The first thing to say is that it is true. Like you can fact check this. It's not just some kind of urban myth. Scandinavian parents leave their children, typically in strollers, outdoors to sleep overnight, even when it's very cold. And they cite some benefits to it. They say that it helps improve immune system. It kind of reduces allergies overall by exposing them to more kind of natural allergens from outdoor. And it improves their sleep cycles with a more natural touch to circadian rhythms. So it is a true story. Second thing, and I really want to highlight this part, it is not endorsed in the United States by the American Academy of Pediatrics. It seems pretty obvious that most, I'd say nearly all neighborhoods couldn't do this anyway. I mean, who would leave their child outdoors in America? That does not sound even possible. But to reiterate the AAP's guidance for how newborns should be sleeping, there's kind of a litany of, of words you should know. The first is flat, firm, and separate. So flat, firm, and separate surface where the children should sleep. That's like a, a crib or a bassinet. And the space should be free of another trifecta here, blankets, bumpers, and toys. Nothing else in the, in the crib with the newborn to prevent complications like the, the worst case scenario with, with SIDS. SIDS being sudden infant death syndrome, which is a dark, dark uh, thought, but it is a reality, uh, unfortunately, much too often. Is there follow-up to this Scandinavian story? Have they changed their practice at all, or has this been going on for millennia? Oh, no, th this is cultural. So, uh, no, there doesn't seem to be any change to their approach. And uh, I, I really brought it up. One, I thought it was of interest to know kind of how different things are for something that seems very common, you know, just how people take care of newborns. But also to highlight that, you know, while we are not going to be recommending children sleep outdoors overnight, especially newborns. There are some benefits to adults getting outdoors and spending more time getting some natural vitamin D themselves, getting uh, some time in nature, which does help with mental health things like anxiety and depression. And to, to comment on what I think on the adult side is a more common trend, which are these, you know, kind of like ice bath habits where you'll, you'll dunk yourself in the ice bath. And there's a lot of health benefits ascribed to it. 
the studies don't exactly bear them out. So this isn't strong evidence-based, but proponents of it cite things like easing soreness and muscle aches, helping the central nervous system just kind of work better and more efficiently. And so you have less fatigue during the day and kind of generally speaking, decreasing inflammatory responses. Maybe you're not going to move to Scandinavia and sleep outdoors, but uh, getting outdoors a little more often wouldn't be a bad idea. And for people who as adults wanted to try the ice challenge, they might find some benefit from it. And one variation of this that I think is more approachable, it's anybody who has trouble with sleep. uh, One of the recommendations is typically made is to keep your bedroom cool. So setting your thermostat to around 65 degrees is a good temperature range for most people to to get a deeper night's sleep. But speaking of the benefits of outdoors and solutions that can be found out in nature, I want to talk a little bit about this company that Bill Gates Investment Group is supporting that was reported in the Washington Post around the idea of carbon capture, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. We need to accompany that reduction in the burning of fossil fuels with taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And the problem so far has been the technology that has been developed. And there have been a variety of startups that are trying various things to suck CO2 directly out of the atmosphere is it's very expensive and highly technical. But this company called Graphite has come up with this process of taking biomass, things like smushed plants, rice hulls, waste from farms and timber mills, and compressing it, dehydrating it, compressing it into basically shoebox-sized bricks, and then storing those underground. And that keeps the CO2 that they retain from being released back into the atmosphere as that biomass degrades. And so it sort of permanently keeps the CO2 out of the atmosphere. And it's such a simple process that it doesn't require a lot of technology, and it also doesn't cost very much, especially compared to the alternatives that have been tried so far. So this is exciting. I'm always drawn to solutions that are technically more simple, and this seems to be one of those. What do you think, Nate? The expense of it, or the inexpense of it, seems to be one of the key highlights. We're going to have to have Adam Aaron back on the show very soon to weigh in on some of these things, because that was one of his main objections to the idea of, say, carbon offsets for airplane ticket purchases, that the amount of money you're spending, say $15 on it, couldn't possibly be enough to meaningfully draw any carbon out of the atmosphere. But you said the price here is actually pretty approachable for what it could uh, accomplish with, what, $100? $100 a ton was was an amount that has been uh, stated before as sort of a goal. If we could get to $100 or a ton or less, we'd be finally starting to get to where this actually is practical. And so I like it because of the fact that it appears that $100 is reachable and maybe they will do, do even better over time. The very first processing plant's going to open in Arkansas next year and they'll begin operating immediately. They already have customers lining up to buy some of the service. The challenge is, can they do this at scale? They need to arrange to get sources of degrading plant matter and various organic waste. But I think those have got to be plentiful. Well, that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> and uh, we'll, have to, <laughs> we'll have to be re, uh, recycling this story in the new year. Between updates on this and Tesla announcing their electric truck, Elon, in that same interview, teased it as maybe the biggest story of the year. So we'll uh, recap that at our next episode, kind of uh, looking forward to 2024. Okay, what else do we have for this episode? We have an update on Alex Rivest, correct? Canary is now available for download and streaming, and we'll put the link in our show links. 
but you can watch this movie. And we do, again, highly recommend this film. It's very watchable and very important. So we're very pleased to continue to share the, the news on Canary, the movie. Yeah, and I kind of feel like this time of year, everyone's looking for holiday movies to watch and debate whether Die Hard is or is not a Christmas movie and whether that's even an interesting question. All these things, I, I will say, I'm not going to call Canary a, a Christmas movie, but there's a lot of just beautiful landscape imagery in it. And most of it is on glacier caps. And so it's snowy and it, it, is, it just feels a little wintry. So if you're looking for a way to spend you know, an hour and a half with some hot chocolate and a, and a blanket, you can do a lot worse than Canary. Absolutely. Again, that link will be in the, in the show links on our website. And we'll be back quickly with our interview with Dr. Georges Benjamin. And we're back, and we are so pleased to have Dr. Georges Benjamin here joining us. He is the executive director of the American Public Health Association. And for those of you who aren't aware, this organization has been around for over 150 years. And the American Public Health Association itself is really behind the scenes for the most part, but helping to support and provide good health care for people across the country. As the voice of that organization, it is a particular honor to be able to talk to you. Georges, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. Bruce, thanks for having me. Georges, it's, it's such an um, honor to have you on our podcast. And uh, we do have to lead off with, with maybe some of an atypical question for you, because uh, it's kind of that time of year. Do you have yourself have any New Year's resolutions you're looking forward to? Or are there any that you uh, might envision for people who are taking an interest in public health? There is so much public discord in the world. I would hope that people will take this celebration that we have called Christmas, or if you're not a uh, Christian, that's fine, the holiday season, and make it go all year long. You know, that Tiny Tim statement of God blesses everyone, it, it's just something real. And we just, we have so many people who are getting on someone's last nerve, as my kids would say, <laughs> <laughs> that, that we just need to stop, take a deep breath, and... Um, just work to make sure everybody's healthy and happy. George, you were recently named as one of the 500 most influential people in the country shaping national health policy. You've written over 200 papers. You edit some very important journals. You serve on boards and commissions. And yet every time I see you, you're always smiling. How do you keep your, what <laughs> powers you through the day every day and keeps your mood in such great shape? My job is to be positive um, and to keep moving forward. You know, um, I went to medical school, actually, not to be a doctor per se, but to get the basic science background to do molecular genetic research. I wanted to be a researcher. Fell in love with clinical medicine. Found out that wasn't, wasn't a really, really great bench researcher, <laughs> but I love clinical medicine. And, you know, you cannot help but be in this business and realize that you have an opportunity to really make people better. And it just helped them through their day. And so I did emergency medicine originally. I did internal medicine, then kind of emergency medicine practice, and then got into public health and discovered that painfully, 80% of what makes you healthy occurs outside the doctor's office. And that there are many things that I could do through a policy perspective to dramatically improve people's lives. And it wasn't easy, but if you were persistent, you could get big wins. That's quite a journey from molecular genetics to various parts of emergent care uh, in the hospital with internal and emergency medicine. Was there ever a light bulb moment for you where you said, I can treat maybe one patient in front of me now, but I can treat 
hundreds or thousands with a with a great policy. Were there any moments like that? Yeah, I was sitting in the emergency department at the city hospital, and literally we were having just a bad day. Lots of you know gunshot rooms, busy people coming in with diabetes and diabetic ketoacidosis, and just all kinds of things that just frankly were preventable. You know, I always known that prevention worked, but at that point it just seemed, why are we doing this? Why are we continue to take people in, sending them back out, and having them come back in with diseases that were far worse than when they came in the first time. Prevention has been such a key part of the societies that I work for with our OBGYN society, ACOG, and the uh, pediatric society, AAP, because the pediatricians came to the OBGYNs and said, you know, by the time our patients are getting to us, it's kind of too late with regard to some of these toxic chemicals they've been exposed to or some of the environmental exposures which is really an amazing thing to think about. You know, a, a two-year-old child, is it's too late for them. They, they already have, say, the lead contamination. We formed this liaison role that I've served for the last eight years between these two societies, talking about how we can intervene in prenatal care or even preconception to help protect the babies uh, at an early age. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the kids, because APHA has a recent statement on gas stoves and the connection to that and childhood asthma. How is APHA, your public health association, helping to get families more aware of these risks and, and protecting them from ending up in the emergency room in the first place? Yeah, we're trying to help people connect the dots between environmental exposures, their diet, nutrition, the things that actually impact them before they get pregnant. The idea that if you're a healthy individual, then you're more likely to have a healthy pregnancy. And then obviously there are important things that have to happen during that pregnancy in order to prevent um, prematurity and um, poor health outcomes on the babies. It's often not thought about, about how important it is for both parents to be healthy, preconception, and then the exposures during conception, you know, um, during the pregnancy. You know, parents are always concerned about what they're eating, what they're drinking once they're pregnant, but they often don't pay enough attention to the exposures that they have before they get pregnant, that also play a role. So with one of these exposures being things like gas stoves, uh, which we're learning more and more pose a risk to indoor air quality, what can a mom do or a, or a family do if they have a gas stove and hear this message and, and think, well, you know, God, I, want, I don't want my child to get asthma. I don't want my developing fetus to be exposed to you know, more air pollution than they already will be with what I can't avoid outside. First thing they need to do is, is try to... Um, uh, make sure that that gas stove is properly hooked up and properly vented. That's the first step. And, you know, far too often, there are leaks. They're not properly vented. And then one can get onto an electric stove. That would be great. They can be more expensive. One of the things that we know, particularly for lower-income individuals, is they pay a larger portion of their income for energy to start with. So we've got to continue to move our country um, off of the whole range of fossil fuels as quickly as we can to the extent that we can and, and get people into a much greener economy. Well, I'm a huge fan of electric cooking. I have an induction cooktop that I've had for two years and it still looks brand new. It's way faster than the gas stove that I used to have. And the evidence around the dangers of gas stoves aren't just around kids and asthma. It's not good for any of us to be breathing the fumes from gas and it's completely preventable. Also, I think the, the price of induction cooktops has come down substantially and will continue to come down. It's just a win-win all the way around. 
I'm really glad to hear that APHA is being proactive and really stepping up and talking about this issue. How does it actually go from the top of your organization where you sit to actually come to some ordinary folks sitting around a kitchen table thinking about a, a choice like uh, switching over to an electric stove? How do you translate your policies for individual families? Our policies are actually driven from the grassroots. Our members actually write their policies. They, they're the ones who are out in the field. They know what the hot issues are. And so they craft those policies and they go through a policy development process in which they often are get dramatically improved because you get a lot of other voices involved, other expertise involved. And then at some point they are adopted. We spend time with our lobbyists up on the Hill, banging on doors and talking to uh, members of Congress, members of the administration to try to influence them to do what we think is the right thing to try to improve uh, the health and well-being of their communities through policy. Now, we also try to activate the average citizen so that they will make those calls as well. Because, you know, when I walk into a room to talk to a public policy person, a member of Congress, member of the administration, they kind of know what I'm going to say. But when Auntie Sue shows up, they don't have a clue why Auntie Sue is going to be there. <laughs> and also, Auntie Sue is a constituent. Yeah. I may or may not be a constituent. So when a constituent speaks up who is well-educated, well-informed, and seeking something that's going to help their community to be healthier and themselves to be healthier and their families to be healthier, they can make a real impact. So we try to activate the average citizens to engage in that process. That's one thing that we, we love to talk about on this podcast is, is the power of individuals to reach the halls of power, that you don't have to be an elected official to engage with elected officials. I really, really love that you kind of underlined that point. Are, are there any, I suspect this is kind of like, like your children, you're not supposed to have favorites, but do you have any favorite policy <laughs> stories recently or any favorite examples of policy work that has, that has really risen up the ranks and, and made a change? So we've been working on a, a coalition, Leadline Coalition, for several years now. And during the Biden transition, some of our members were able to talk with the Biden transition team to get them to focus on lead exposure. Now, obviously, lead had been a big deal. We had that in the Flint, Michigan exposure. And so it was in the public consciousness. It was in the consciousness of elected officials. But as you know, it actually got written into the infrastructure, I'm sorry, the um, Inflation Reduction Act. And there is now money to replace lead lines in people's homes to try to get the lead out of our water. That is a situation where some early advocacy, um, some APHA policy, some members that we know and, and others that advocated with the administration that actually got written into policy, got money on the table, and now the administration is actively working to exchange those lines so that these kids, all these kids in our communities um, are not going to be exposed to lead, which we know is a significant, significant neurotoxin. It's one of the things that I love about people that work in public health, and you're certainly the prime example of that, is that that's not a particularly big headline in the media that we are going to prevent lead toxicity going forward. It ought to be because it's going to have such tremendous impact in people's lives going forward. But so much of the work in public health is really kind of behind the scenes. So hopefully you all take the time to congratulate yourselves and one another when you get policies like this passed because their implications are so huge. We like to focus on, since we're both OBGYNs, on pregnancy health. 
Are there any particular initiatives or actions that APHA is working on that relate to pregnancy? We're trying to work with the Moms Bill. We're trying to get um, work through Congress to actually support pregnant women and children because, you know, there is a, a terrible, terrible situation in our country where pregnancy isn't healthy for some women. It's supposed to be a joyous time. And yet far too many women in our country uh, have challenges with their pregnancy. Um, in the African-American community, uh, far too many African-American women are dying during pregnancy and after they deliver from a range of complications. So we're working very hard to both do a better job of educating women about those risks, working around the connectiveness of our health system so that when those women, after they deliver and they go back into community, that we all listen to them as clinicians when they have complications, when they're having problems, when they're telling us that something's not quite right in their body so that we can get ahead of some of these complications that they're having. And when women um, are going through pregnancy, that they're actually showing up for their visits, they're getting their prenatal visits, they're identifying issues that are occurring early. Um, you know, um, hypertension during pregnancy is often something that just gets missed and it shouldn't get missed. And then those women have terrible, terrible health outcomes as of their babies. When you were talking about the work in Congress being done, are you referring to the Momnibus Act, that suite of bills? Yep, that whole suite of bills. We're trying to get those passed. And yeah, we've got champions in Congress. It's not, it's, you know, the, it's not that there aren't champions. It's just that Congress, there are members of Congress that are putting together legislation, and they're, the, the whole body just isn't moving fast enough to solve some of these problems. So we're really pushing them to do so. Well, if they need any motivation, you can advise them that the Cannon House building has been found to have lead in their water. So there's public health problem to be solved for them personally. And if you don't think they're making good decisions, lead is a neurotoxic. So it might be affecting their brain a little bit. <laughs> to, to switch gears a little bit, uh, but, but along these lines, you know, we have to talk about COVID because it, while it has somewhat faded from acuity and, and bringing people to the hospital in, in masses... It is still out there, and it's and it's still a topic, I think maybe the first topic people would think about right now when they consider public health. We'd like to do some some quick fact or fiction, if we could. Is that all right? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. So first one, fact or fiction, the COVID vaccines worked and saved lives. Absolutely. Those vaccines are safe and effective, and they just save lives. Um, no question about it. Regardless of, of what version of the vaccine you got, it saved lives. Okay, so ne next question, follow up to that, to bring it to present time, the current vaccine for COVID is somewhat different than a booster and still important to obtain. Yes, it's, it's an updated strain. So they, 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 you know, the other vaccines had multiple strains in it. This has a single strain, but it's consistent with the, the strain that's circulating in the environment today. And so the way to think about this is every year we get, a, we get a flu shot that's updated. This is an updated COVID shot, which represents the virus that's floating in the neighborhood today. And I have to chime in that I'm just getting over COVID. So you might want to wipe off your monitor screen after we're done with this interview because <laughs> I still might have a little bit of virus in my system. I got all the vaccines except the last one. And lo and behold, I finally got COVID. I wish I had gotten that vaccine because it would have made this last week and a half a bit more pleasant. Another side of this issue revolves around masking. The changing mask policies did make sense at the time, true or false. They did. And look, masks work. And for a variety of reasons, it wasn't well articulated. The communication was terrible. And look, I'm to blame like everybody else. We 
did not really think that masks would be as effective as they were. Turns out, in retrospect, they're very effective. Of course, it depends on several things. One, the type of mask you're wearing. N95 is the best. Multi-layer cloth mask. Um, surgical mask is the next best. And a multi-layer cloth mask is the third best. But all three of those work at various levels of protection. They're part of a suite of protections, which includes vaccine, masking, and social distancing. Nothing's 100% in medicine, but they do dramatically reduce your risk. The second thing we have to remember is that you have to wear the mask correctly. So I've heard lots of people say that I wore a mask and it didn't work. And when you get a look at what they were doing, the mask was either under their nose or over their mouth. So they weren't wearing a mask correctly. You know, as looking around the offices, the medical offices nowadays, we still see quite a few people wearing masks when they're when they're sick, uh, when they have symptoms. And this seems like not the worst outcome from the pandemic response, that if people are well enough to go to work, but still have some symptoms, whether they think it's COVID or not, they should wear masks. That, that, that's, that's not a bad idea. Do, do you see that as something that could be ongoing after this emergent response is over? When this thing first happened, this tragedy of COVID, one of the questions I asked myself, well, we're we going to become a mask-wearing society. And the answer is we are. Everybody won't do it, but we will do so episodically. And look, by the way, we know that during COVID, we had less COVID uh, eventually. We had less influenza. We had less people coming down with, quote-unquote, the common cold and other respiratory diseases. And, of course, now that we're out and about, we're all catching them again. Masks do play a role, and we should wear masks when it's appropriate. And connecting this conversation to one of our other favorite topics, which is to talk about how the climate is deteriorating, it is apparent that it may make it more likely that we're going to have something like COVID or some other related virus. What would you hope that we do differently if we're confronted with another pandemic? Well, first of all, I think that we need to provide strong national leadership. Um, we did not have that. We had leadership, but it was episodic. Um, during out the pandemic. So we need to have strong national leadership, which is directed, which engages people, which is evidence-based. Secondly, we need to have a good incident command structure. The incident command structure kept changing all through the pandemic. We never knew who was on first, who was on second. CDC got blamed for a lot of things to which they had no decision-making whatsoever. But CDC did, wasn't perfect, and neither one of, none of us were. I think it's also important that we fix our data systems, our communication systems. Look, Uber, Amazon, we just finished what Black Friday, and I think this is Cyber Monday. And it's amazing what our nation can do around data and communication, but we still can't send an EKG across the street. Uh, we're still debating about whether or not we ought to use telemedicine. What nonsense. Of course we ought to be using telemedicine. Uh, and we ought to be paying people adequately to provide those services. And we need to fix the data systems we have so that we can send data around the health system and stop making excuses around we can't do it. Everything is a HIPAA violation, a HIPAA violation. No, 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 no. We can share that data with critical business partners. We can do it confidentially. We can protect patients' information and confidentially. After all, Uber does it. DoorDash does it. Amazon does it. Now, everybody has data breaches. Don't get me wrong. But improving health is about sharing that information effectively. I got to tell you, when I was practicing in the emergency department, I often wished I had more information to make data-driven decisions than I often had uh, making those decisions in the emergency department. Yeah, not, not to make light of this, but I, I often somewhat joke that it's easier for me to manage my fantasy football team 
than it is to manage a patient data set. Like I can get instantly access to, to quarterbacks, detailed analytics, you know, grass versus turf, all kinds of details. But to find a patient's blood pressure history for the last week, if it was outside of my hospital system, would, would be nearly impossible. Do you think that it's a matter of just loosening some restrictions like we saw during the COVID pandemic that, that really allowed telehealth to accelerate where we took away a few restrictions? Or is there something more that needs to happen from a tech position? The tools are there. There's no question that we already have the technology to do this. Uh, many, many years ago, President Eisenhower and others decided we ha- needed to have a national highway system so we could connect this loosely connected groups of roads we had. They did that for national security purposes. And so they built the national highway system. And now we can move from one side of the country to the other pretty effortlessly. And we can do the same thing with our data. It's going to require national leadership. They'll say once and for all, we need to have a health data information technology highway. They've got to build the rules of the road, just like we have um, when we're driving from one point to another. And they've got to incentivize it with the, the money to fund it. By the way, we did a little bit of that after 9-11 for the healthcare system, but we did not do that for the public health system. And it's going to be very important for those two pieces of our, our health system to be connected so that we have important interconnectedness between those two systems. And I can't overemphasize that enough. Speaking of these need for more connections and how that relates to really serious ongoing risk, can you tell us something about the Center for Climate Health and Equity at the APHA? This looks like a really, really amazing new, new program you have. It's an important center we have, which is addressing the issue about climate change and our health. And, you know, for many years, people who have been interested in climate change have been concerned about what happens as the environment changes. And I got to tell you, I really, really, really care about the polar bears. I really, really care about the icebergs. But at the end of the day, what I really care about is what climate change is doing to people's health. You know, we talk about pregnant women. We had those heat waves, which were terribly, terribly impactful to women who were pregnant. We had the wildfires, which put pregnant women and their babies at risk. We've had floods around around the country, which again, put pregnant women and their babies at risk because of the pollutants that get into our drinking water when that happens. Climate change is here today, it's impacting our health today, and we need to pay a lot of attention to it. So this center is helping us connect the dots between climate change, our health, and the equity part of this, because the challenge we have is the people least likely to increase our, you know, climate cause climate change, are the people most likely to be impacted. The older folks, children, lower income individuals, pregnant ladies, um, you know, it's it's a real challenge. George, as you are singing our song, of course, our, our paper in JAMA has had a huge amount of attention paid to it around the risks of various aspects of climate change and birth outcomes. And thank you for underlining those. We're very glad that that's on your radar and that APHA is taking this issue so seriously as it should. But looking forward, since this is the beginning of a new year and it's a particularly important year in this country, what is going on as far as your your work that makes you feel hopeful about 2024? I've got grandkids, and they don't share my, share my pessimism. They are very hopeful. They get up every day, and they, they know they want to play. They enjoy engaging um, with their friends and their colleagues. And so when I look at them, I realize that I still have a lot of work to do. i got to roll up my sleeves. 
I've got to make the environment safer for them to, to, to be in. I've got to make it safer so that they don't have to deal with gun violence. I've got to make the air safer for them to breathe, the water safer for them to drink. Um, and I've got to ensure that when they do get sick, we've got a health system that can take care of them, that they can go in, get the best care possible, and they can come out as healthy as they deserve to be. Well, George, we're, we're so lucky to have people like you working in these really important jobs like, like you're doing. How can we help you? If, if people, you know, are listening to this and they, they get it, you know, they, they see that changes need to, need to be made, how can they as, I don't use this term in a negative way, but as average citizens go out and, and do something at scale that they can take control over? I think to recognize it, be informed. Look, every person lives in a community and those communities have library boards and school boards and they um, elected officials. They should be involved in the electoral process. They should come as informed as they possibly can, they should speak their minds. Even if you disagree on policy on something that I believe in, that's okay. We ought to have those kinds of debates in our country because that's what makes this country great. And so I encourage people to get out and get involved. Write to a member of the school board or the city council, or but do so well-informed. And so some of the things that we can help you with is going to authoritative sources. We like to think APHA is one of those at APHA.org. But there are other groups, other organizations. Pick the organization that you care about that's authoritative, that believes in, um, in the facts and knowledge, and learn what you can, and then and get engaged. Great advice. And I just have to say from the Green Docs, we are so pleased at the direction that you have taken APHA in and the leadership that you've provided for all these years. And I'm always happy when I see you that you're still smiling and looking like you're full of energy because <laughs> we got a lot more work to do, it seems. And I'm so glad that you are at the helm of this organization and helping us get there. So thank you for your work and for your continuing contribution. And Bruce and Nate, thank you very much for your time today. That was Dr. Georges Benjamin, America's top public health doc, giving us some real insights into what was probably for many people who work in public health, their Super Bowl moment facing a global pandemic like the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, I, I want to take an opportunity to thank not only Dr. Benjamin for coming on our program and uh, for highlighting where things went right and where, uh, you know, perhaps things could have been done differently and mistakes were made. But also to give a shout out to all the public health workers out there. So much of their work gets done in either in silent or certainly in silence from media coverage. Uh, it's unseen. And unfortunately, only the mistakes get public recognition. So at least for, for this podcast right now, we want to thank Dr. Benjamin's leadership and all the workers who protect us from lead in the pipes and from infected meat in the stores. And eventually we will solve this air pollution problem, uh, among others. Clinically, I want to highlight a few points that he made uh, and direct it uh, to the office appointment for pregnant women or for women who are, are thinking about pregnancy. One is George's message about polar bears being fine to care about, but really it's about mothers and babies who we need to protect when these natural disasters happen. And we know they're going to happen more often. Things like floods, wildfires, extreme heat, extreme cold. You should be talking to your doctor or your healthcare team about these. There really are things that we can do to protect the pregnancy from these effects being worse uh, for you or for your baby. And we've mentioned it a few times on this podcast. And so to reiterate, there are apps that you should be downloading right now and using. There's the EPA Air Now app that will tell you about air quality indices minute to minute throughout the year. 
There is the OSHA Heat Index app, which will tell you about when it's safe to go outside and exercise and, and when it's not, when it, when it is better to just stay indoors. I also want to talk about a message that George Benjamin mentioned about if we're going to be a mask wearing society, because the answer is that we will be, or at least we should be. And it's not just for when you might have symptoms and you don't want to call out from work, but uh, you should not be spreading a, a contagious disease. Uh, there are other times to protect yourself environmental factors that a mask really will be helpful. This is especially true for things like air pollution with pollutants like PM2.5 and ozone, where simply wearing a mask will help protect you from the dangerous effects of those on your lungs, on other parts of your vascular system, and importantly, your placenta and the developing baby. Yes, basically talk to your doctor about it and, and use these apps. And briefly, we ought to reiterate what Dr. Benjamin told us about our place in the community, how uh, instrumental all of us can be if we show up well-informed. I believe Adam Aaron spoke about how state and even local governments have more of an impact on our day-to-day -day lives than most of us realize. And so showing up to meetings of city councils and school boards and things like that after becoming informed, doing your research, going to reliable sources of information, like the American Public Health Association website, which will be linked in the show notes, and taking your opinions and uh, your interest and in showing up can have a big impact on not only yourself and your family, but the rest of your community. So important to keep that in mind. All right, Bruce, well, speaking about our communities, have you done your Christmas shopping or your holiday shopping? It's an ongoing process. What have you come up with so far for a Green Docs gift guide? There are a lot of ways we could have approached this gift guide. We could have looked at things that were just sustainable first and then interesting second. But we didn't think we wanted to tell you guys to go out and buy, say, recyclable shopping bags or things like that. So we've picked some gifts that we think are interesting anyway, but also might have some uh, utility for women's health. And as well, on the flip side, if you know women are looking for people who they're shopping for, maybe there would be some, some interest there. So leading off, we're going to go with uh, Zero Proof Spirits. And there are a number of brands that we'll list in our gift guide on the show doc. But we're going to highlight Soft Spirits. Uh, they're a company out of Los Angeles that uh, sell all zero-proof uh, options. They have some really interesting recipes. Jillian Barkley, the founder of Soft Spirits, will be joining us next episode to give us some mocktails specifically developed just for the holiday season and for the podcast. Yes, and with temperatures dropping, we all uh, might benefit from a new sweater or a jacket. And we would in particular recommend checking out the online catalog for Patagonia. Also, Outer Known, the clothing manufacturer that's represented by Kelly Slater, the world champion surfer, multiple times. Both of these companies have a very, very strong interest and pledge and are actually not greenwashing. Their, their products are breaking new ground in terms of lowering their impact. And I also happen to think from many years of experience with both of these companies that they make excellent stuff. It lasts <clears throat> a long time. And they have very attractive and useful styles. We'll have links to Patagonia and Outer Known, as well as Offense, which is an Australian company that has a very strong sustainability ethic. When you're out there on your adventures, you'll need a timepiece to keep you on schedule. So let's talk watches. People know I'm a big watch fan. There are some brands that are especially useful when you're thinking about the, the green impact. One is called Vayer, V-A-E-R, their brand out of Venice Beach. Their full brand is actually named Vayer Adventure, so meant for these outdoors activities. They have a number of uh, solar-powered watches, which when we're talking about 
longevity for products. Really, you know, solar powered batteries are the future in so many industries. And this is one example. Vare also has a ethos called 1% for the planet, where even as a rather small growing company, they donate 1% of their proceeds to sustainable efforts. Another brand that you might look at is called Original Grain. These uh, are some guys out of San Diego that recycle baseball bats and whiskey barrels and put them into watch bands and watch faces and make some really uh, interesting and, and sustainable watches. My dad got me one of these for Christmas a number of years ago, and, and I really enjoy wearing it. That's right. And I have my original grain watch that you gave me when our paper came out, uh, just to celebrate that milestone. But for the, the surfers and the ocean lovers on your list, I also want to call out the uh, fact that many wetsuit companies are now making their products from petroleum-free rubber, as opposed to neoprene, which is made from oil. Patagonia makes the list, as does Visla and a number of other companies. And speaking of protecting the ocean, go check out the brand For Ocean. They pull a pound of plastic from the water with every donation. And even though we're talking about you know leaving fossil fuels in the ground and how important that is, we don't at all want to diminish the importance of keeping plastic out of our waterways uh, and keeping it therefore out of microplastics that end up in breast milk and placentas. Four Ocean has some uh, really fantastic water bottles and other things that uh, anybody might want to use, uh, pregnant women especially. I, if you often see me during uh, the outtakes, I'm using the bottle all the time, kind of in between comments here, taking some sips. So go check them out and consider subscribing to their bracelet model. And not all eco-friendly products carry a branding in that way, but a lot of times it gets down to how these products are actually used. And one example of that is a favorite of mine in my home, which is a toaster from a company called Balmuda, which uses a Japanese steam technology. But its eco-friendly cred comes from the fact that because of how well this toaster works and the fact that it's able to resuscitate days old pizza or bread and toast it, it actually makes, I find in my own life, that I buy bread less often and that I'm more able to use leftovers for a longer period of time because it does such a good job bringing those things back to life. And for the complete gift guide with other topics like kids' toys that don't have endocrine-disrupting chemicals, glassware, and clean beauty products, go check out uh, in our show links the, the full list. All right, Bruce, it is time for a mocktail. What do you have for us today? Well, I'm experimenting as I like to do, but I, you know, thinking about the holidays and my own experience, and you can tell in my voice throughout this entire podcast, I'm still dealing with the, uh, the upper respiratory impacts of, of COVID, but people get COVID, but they also get lots of colds and flu during this time of year. So I've got a mocktail, which is sort of based on the holidays with the idea being that we could use a little extra vitamin C in our diet. So I'm actually combining a bit of orange juice fresh squeezed orange juice and a kin spritz euphoric that has some citrusy note over ice with a little bit of dill. So that's what I've got going on here. Good luck to me. What are you having? Wow. A little bit of dill was not on my bingo card for what will appear in our mocktail session. So I also have a martini glass because, you know, it's that time of year when people be at a lot of holiday parties and, you know, maybe you either want to disguise that you're not yet drinking alcohol, uh, you haven't made the announcement yet, or maybe you want to just partake in the party and kind of feel like you're still drinking an adult beverage. This is the time of year when clinically I get the most questions from patients who are pregnant. Like, do I really have to drink no alcohol? Can I have a sip of champagne on New Year's Eve? That kind of thing. So I went with uh, just a, a very classic kind of cocktail party drink, which is the martini. 
And since we've got some professionals joining our podcast soon, I decided to try to up our game a little bit. I actually have a, a lemon wedge applied to this. And the martini typically is either gin or vodka with vermouth. And then you can go James Bond style or not, shaken, not stirred. So I've got some Monday brand zero alcohol gin. As a substitute for the vermouth, I've got uh, Optimist Botanicals, which has a bunch of different flavors like turmeric and lavender and tangerine that, that kind of approach vermouth. The key thing I added to this one was a little bit of ginger syrup, or you could use just some ginger juice to kind of kick up the flavor. And also ginger is a natural anti-nausea, so it can help people who are fighting that. All right, Bruce. Cheers. Cheers. Happy holidays. All right. What do you think? Do you feel healthier? Yum. Yes. And uh, this is a very adult looking drink I got going here. I'd be happy to have this in any sort of a circumstance. And uh, I love the fact that I'm getting a nice little dose of vitamin C and a little bit of caffeine from the Ken Euphoric, both of which I think will make my day better. How about you? Yeah, an amount of caffeine that would be approved for pregnancy as well. I'm, I'm enjoying this. I have experimented a few times with trying to kind of reproduce a flavor that isn't just like water or spa water. I do think the ginger syrup or ginger juice adds a kick. I, th I think it helps a lot. Looking forward to next episode when Jillian Barkley from Soft Spirits shares with us some some custom made mocktail recipes that will be holiday themed and also you know designed by people who kind of know what they're doing and aren't just experimenting with it like, like we are. Yes, I think we could use a little bit of expert guidance. And so uh, that's going to be fun. A new episode of Green Docs will be out every other Thursday, so make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listening content, or stop by our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can check out the show notes and links from the episode. You can also send us your comments and submit questions. This holiday episode of the Green Docs was created by Bruce Bacar and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411. Check out our website greendocspodcast.com where you can like and subscribe please tell your friends and submit questions we we love answering those look out for a new episode every other thursday and happy holidays from the green docs